See, the story of the chapel is in, very important in American history. Hmm. It was constructed in the mid-1660s. The importance of that is nowhere else in the English-speaking world at the time could a freestanding Catholic church be built. It was forbidden by English law. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and this is the last episode of season two. It is a little bit of a niche episode. It's very Crab and the Cross themed. I talked to Dr. Henry Miller, who is a historian and archaeologist at historic St. Mary's City. If you watched or listened to the trailer I made for the podcast, you know that I am coming at you from the birthplace of Catholicism in America. Now, it's a little bit of a contentious claim because Catholics were definitely in Florida and California before they were in Maryland, but Florida and California were not part of the original 13 colonies, so Maryland has been America, and when I say America, I mean the U.S., longer than they have. So I'm just going to go ahead and claim that for my state. So St. Mary's City was the first European settlement in the state of Maryland. It was not an exclusively Catholic settlement. It wasn't even a predominantly Catholic settlement, but it is unique in being the first settlement that included Catholics. Um, And there's a few other things about this settlement that make it really unique. Um, One is that it was a place of religious tolerance, Um, not just in practice, but actually in law. There was something passed in 1649 called the Act Concerning Religion, which established it as a place that allowed the freedom of religion amongst the various Christian denominations. Um, It did not extend to other religions, but that wasn't really a factor in that location at the time. Um, It didn't last long. It was actually repealed like five years later. Um, But that's a story for another day. Something else unique is that the English settlers actually traded for and had permission from the Yokomoko Native American tribe that resided there to establish a a colony. So um, unlike other European colonies, this was not a place that was taken by force um, or a place that was fought for. It was peacefully given. Um, and so there was a, a sense of harmony between the Yakumako people and the, the settlers at um, St. Mary's. Um, and then it there were not initially any slaves on, on this voyage. Um, you know, all these things came later. But what I love is that in the first few years, this was kind of like an oasis of peace, you know, peace between religious groups, peace between natives and Europeans, um, you know, not this horrific injustice of slavery. And so, I don't know, I just I just think there's something special about that. Um, and of course, the whole place is just enshrined by Our Lady. It is St. Mary's City in St. Mary's County in Maryland. And so I just think it is like the the perfection of, I don't know, Marian spaces in America. 
Uh, but obviously I'm a bit biased. Anyways, it's a really interesting conversation. You know, if you're a history buff, I think you'll enjoy it. Hopefully, if you're not a native Maryland, you can still, um, you know, enjoy learning a bit of of, of Catholic and uh, American history. So anyways, like I said, this is the last episode of season two. I am headed back to the studio on Friday. I'm actually recording two interviews back to back that day, but I'm going to take a couple weeks off to batch record new episodes, and then I'll be back with interviews in August. However, in the meantime, I'm going to be releasing some short reflections um, once a week. I have become really obsessed with the Beatitudes in terms of my spirituality lately, and I want to share some reflections on how to apply the Beatitudes to online engagement. So I plan to share, to release um, short, you know, maybe five to 10 minute reflections once a week for the next eight weeks until I come back with new episodes for season three. I would also love it if you would take the time to write a written review on Apple Podcasts, Uh, And then if you have other social media platforms, please give me a follow over there. Okay. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Henry Miller. Dr. Henry Miller is the Maryland Heritage Scholar at Historic St. Mary City, Maryland. He obtained his PhD in anthropology from Michigan State University with a specialization in historic sites archaeology. His first contact with St. Mary's City came in 1972 when he was hired as an archaeological excavator. Much of Dr. Miller's career has been devoted to exploring 17th and 18th century sites and the effective conversion of those many discoveries into historic exhibits for the public, including galleries, full reconstructions, and living history sites. These exhibits include historic St. Mary's City, Jamestown Settlement, Colonial Williamsburg, and others. Dr. Miller's research interests are wide-ranging and include foodways and colonial architecture, artifacts such as ceramics, tobacco pipes, and oyster shells, environmental studies, changing landscapes over time, and the intellectual influences that shaped Maryland and its founders. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Mary Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are not a Maryland native, right? That is correct. I'm a hail from Arkansas originally. But when I put the shovel in the ground in 1972, I became enamored with Maryland's fascinating history. (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad. Um, So you initially went to study archaeology, anthropology and archaeology. What were some of your early interests just growing up that led you to pursue that career? Well, I'd always been interested in history due to my mom, probably. I was... The, the centennial of the American Civil War was when I was a kid. And mm. Oh, that, yeah. That, that struck my interest. And it was really uh, visiting sites, going to Gettysburg and things like that, that I really enjoyed. And so it was, it was an interest that just grew. And then I was thinking of history, but I got waylaid for a year into the drama major in hmm. uh, college. <laughs> 
But then I found this archaeology thing, and I just fell in love with it because it gave us windows into new new things that you couldn't learn from written records. Mm. And that's what really persuaded me. You could, the, the people who are forgotten, the people who are just overlooked, or even those that are well-documented, aspects right. of their lives that nobody wrote down. Right. You know, how right. many of us write down what we had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner on yeah. a daily basis? <laughs> they didn't either. Right, right. <laughs> Um, real quick, can you just pull this a little bit closer, actually? Um, that might be better. Okay, good. So did you get to do a lot of um, excavations as you were pursuing your degrees? Or is that kind of hands-off until you, you were like, you know, have your bona fides? Oh, no. I, I, I took my first field school in 1971. Okay. First European settlement in Arkansas. Oh, wow. Yeah. How long ago was that? That was, that was again, for 50, 52 years ago now. Okay. Well, I mean, how long how long ago was the first settlement? 1680s. 1680s, so okay. Was, 1680s, okay. yeah. But I also did uh, archaeology in Texas. I did it in Michigan, did it in Virginia, uh, and, of course, Maryland. Right, yeah. So I think a lot of people, when they imagine an archaeologist doing an excavation or working in, in the field, they are doing a lot of digging, a lot of dusting, and then uh trying to piece you know artifacts together what does it actually look like when you're kind of down in in the dirt so to speak it's dirty (laughs) it's it's hard physical labor but it's also exciting because you never know what the next shovel or trowel will reveal so i think it's that sense of discovery Mm. that makes it so exciting yeah to dig even though you're you're you know you're fatigued you're sweaty you're hot right but still you you can come up with something that nobody's touched for 300 or 3,000 years wow and each of those objects has a story and if we can put all of them together we can we can understand and learn that story in a way that's never before been possible yeah I'm always fascinated, like when I watch, you know, documentaries or things like that, uh, featuring archaeology and how just just the eye that people have, where they can be digging and they'll pull up something and they know, like, oh, this is a pot shard versus like this is just some kind of you know polished rock. Like, how are you, um, you know, able to train your senses? Like, or, or does a lot of that understanding come afterwards? Like when you take things back to a lab and you're like looking at them under a microscope, like. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, something's dirty, you can sometimes think, but the more you do it, the more you learn. Mm -hmm. And part of the training is to identify artifacts. Yeah. Like in the, you know, the field school, which I've taught for decades here at St. Mary's College, Mm -hmm. we have uh, several, a number of lectures, intensive lectures about recognizing what the artifacts are and when they date to. So it's, it's part of the learning. Okay. Yeah. So then how did you end up in, in Maryland after you got your PhD? I was uh, getting, I was going to receive my BA degree in May of 1972, and I answered an advertisement on the bulletin board in the Anthro Department, <laughs> the University of Arkansas, for diggers needed at a place called St. Mary's City. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I applied. And what was interesting is I knew the name. Because when I was in the third grade, our teacher taught us about somebody called Andrew White, and he had built the first Catholic church in the original colonies. 
And I remembered that. Wow. Go, wow, that'd be an interesting place to work. So yeah. I kind of started it by, by chance, a bulletin board advertisement. Yeah. Did you go to uh, Catholic school or was this yeah. just, okay. I went through 12 years. So okay. Oh, school. wow. Okay, great. So what was your, uh, you were, you were a digger. Like, I, I mean, some of my listeners will be familiar with the way historic St. Mary's looks now with a lot of the reconstruction, but did it look was much of that built in the like up in the seventies, or is that the only, when I arrived? The only building the museum owned was the Brick State House. Okay. Everything else has been constructed since then. Wow. Much of it shaped by the archaeological discoveries that we've made. Wow, that's awesome. We're gonna get to that uh, in a little bit, but I want to talk up first about some of the history of St. Mary's City and mm-hmm. and kind of how it came to be. So, where did the first European settlers come from? The vast majority were from England, and there were some from Ireland, maybe a few from Wales. Mm-hmm. But the first ship, the Ark and Dove, the two vessels that led was on the voyage, uh, was almost exclusively from that area. But there were a few other people that they uh, took on probably perhaps in Barbados. Hmm, One of them really? was Matthias de Sousa, okay. who is, uh, was part African, part European ancestry. Uh, he, he became sort of a, a very important figure, in fact, because he was the first person with African ancestry to vote in an American legislature. Wow. So, but he was on the original voyage. But again, the vast majority were that original. Only later in time... Uh, 15 years later, did we start getting lots of other, uh, we had Swedes, we had mm-hmm. Dutch, we had French, we had Germans, we had all kinds of other people coming mm-hmm. to Maryland. Yeah. And this, this man who was part uh, Barbados, was he living in England at the time? No, or? We don't, it isn't for sure. The best speculation by our historian was that he was sort of signed on in Barbados as a, huh. an opportunity. Okay. Wow. So what, how would you describe the, the people who came over on the Ark and the Dove? I mean, are they mostly upper class? Are they, you know, more of like refugees? What's the okay. kind of their status? A small number of them were the elite, mm-hmm. I guess, beginning with Governor Leonard Calvert, the son of Lord Baltimore. Um, Thomas Cornwallis, Jerome Hawley, they were kind of the leaders but the vast majority were just regular people. Wow. They were, most of them were what we would call indentured servants. Hmm. They came for, to pay for their passage. They agreed to work for four, five years, and then they became freemen mm-hmm. as such. So, and the other thing is the misnomer is they were all Catholics. Probably yeah. only about 20% of the original voyage were Catholic. Oh, most really? Were Protestant. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was a, a very religiously mixed okay. uh, group. There, okay. Although mostly of from Britain. Right, right. Yeah, because I, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Father Andrew White, but were there other clergymen on board? Yes. There were several Jesuits. Okay. And they were uh, there. Uh, they, most of them died pretty quickly, unfortunately. Really? Of, about a third of the people that came to Maryland died within the first year. 
Oh my gosh! It was wow. a it was a true risk. Wow! Yeah, and this was local diseases. Okay. It was uh, probably influenza, dysentery, malaria was another big medical really? problem here. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it wasn't so much from like lack of nutrition and not being able to start, you know, farming early on. It was no. Okay. Mar- Maryland avoided all the problems that they'd made at. Jamestown, yeah. Plymouth, yeah, <laughs> and uh, of self-sufficiency, sustainability was a very early achievement. Wow, yeah. So, approximately, how many people came over on the Ark and the Dove? We're we're guessing around 150, but no precise. Okay, count. so that's There's a no, tiny number. Of tiny people. number of people. Yes. Yeah, and do you know if if it was many families or if it was mostly, you know, single men ready for adventure? <laughs> There were a few families, okay. but generally speaking, it was young males. There were some young women mm-hmm. there, uh, but the the ratio of men to women in the early years was six to one. Wow. <laughs> so it was a very unbalanced society in that regard. Yeah. And what was their um, relationship to, you know, the British monarchy? Like, were they sent as envoys where they kind of rogue and just, you know, got together and said, hey, let's let's sail this way. Like, did they have any connection or any obligation, you know, to to people back yeah, in Britain? Absolutely. They work. They they considered themselves loyal Englishmen. Okay. Women. Yeah. Okay. The only reason that Maryland happened is because Lord Baltimore had served King James very well. And although he converted to Catholicism or returned to Catholicism more accurately, that meant he couldn't serve in government offices anymore. But wow. the king was, and his son Charles was very favorable. And so he got the charter because of that royal connection. Oh, but wow. they all considered themselves uh, loyal subjects of the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, they Maryland was founded for, like everything, multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. One was opportunity. They wanted to advance themselves. Uh, They wanted to show that they could be loyal to the king. And they wanted a place where religious freedom would be a policy of government, Mm. which was rare in the 17th century. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of early Maryland is it was one of the first places where the the idea of liberty of conscience mm. became the policy of government. Mm. And that was just almost unheard of at the time. The yeah. prevailing idea was if you have different divisions by faith, you can, will only have a society that is torn apart because unity under the crown was critical. Right. And of course, Lord Baltimore said, no, I don't think that's correct. And instituted that policy that allowed all of these different faiths. In fact, Maryland had the, the most diverse uh, religious communities wow. in America in the 1650s, 1660s time frame. Wow. Now, Lord Baltimore, he was a Catholic? Okay, the first Lord Baltimore oh, okay. was raised as a Catholic. At the age of 12, he was forced by Queen Elizabeth's uh, into hours to become Protestant. Mm-hmm. He lived as a Protestant up until 1625, 
three, three, four. In 1624, he officially became returned to the Catholic mm-hmm. faith mm-hmm. there, and that's when he suddenly could no longer hold office. He couldn't, you know, do a lot of the things right, because right. only Protestants wow. and indeed only Church of England people could yeah. have those things. So he took a big risk then. Huge, huge uh, fall in and what hit from his power that he had. Wow. Do you know what led him to return? That's a big speculation. Oh, really? And okay. there's a lot of uncertainty hmm. there. But it, it certainly, it, this, a lot of this happened after his wife died. Okay. And, and he, my thought is that he actually never totally gave up his faith, hmm. but he lived as a Protestant because they're sometimes called crypto-Catholics because uh-huh. it was the only way you could succeed. Yeah. But it went, and finally he resolved himself, I can't live like that anymore. Wow. I have to be true to the faith. Wow. And did he remarry eventually? Eventually he did, yeah. A Catholic woman or? Yeah, apparently okay. from Ireland. We oh, think. okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what year did uh, the Ark and the Dove come to Maryland? Okay. They, arrived, they departed England in November of 1633, and they arrived in Maryland in March of 1634. Okay. So uh, about they, five or six months it on took voyage. Quite a while. They had a they had a, a, a stay in Barbados where they were amazed by the tropical fruits right. and all the cool stuff. But, <laughs> but they arrived early enough to get crops in. Mm. So they they were very careful about making sure they had foodstuffs. Yeah. And the food that they had had to make was not what they knew, because hmm. the land Maryland was covered with massive trees. It was a primary forest. Oh, wow. The only open area was where the native peoples had cleared for their cornfields. Wow. So the colonists had to learn how to grow corn, which (laughs) they were taught by the native Yokomoko people who were at St. Mary's, and that was a key factor in their success. Wow. Had there been any contact with the Yokomoko peoples prior to that time? There had been hostile contact with the Virginians okay. to some extent, but there was a trader, fur, fur trader named Henry Fleet, who started uh, coming up and exchanging furs with them. Mm-hmm. So he's the one that told Leonard Calvert, the first governor, where this village was. Hmm. So it was through the Henry Fleet's help that they found the 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 town of Yokomoko, as it was called, occupied by the Yokomoko people. Okay, okay. And where exactly was that? Um, that what would it be today? Well, it's basically where the college in St. Mary's okay. City is. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> we don't know. Pers- we, we have found traces in a number of locations, but it wasn't like a a small cluster of buildings with a fortification around them. Mm-hmm. It was an agricultural village, so there was villages mixed into the, or houses mixed into the fields. Okay. So it okay. was a broader, broader, uh, dis- more dispersed settlement, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I've been over to, I think it's Jefferson Patterson Park over in, in Calvert, and they have I don't even know what they would, would call them, but like these replicas of sort of these hut-like yeah. structures. Called Wichark. Wichark. was okay. one of the names. That, yeah. And that was also the, the Yokomoko people, I assume? Yeah. Okay. 
Were there any other native tribes living in southern Maryland, what we call southern Maryland? Yes. Uh, the largest was the Piscataway. Okay, okay. Up near Washington, D.C. Yeah. They were uh, what we have scholars have called a chiefdom. Mm-hmm. And that they were a more powerful group, and they had people who joined them, the uh, Chaptico or the other, uh, some of the other groups, Mattawoman mm-hmm. uh, villages or people would uh, come under their sway. So that was, and there was also uh, several groups living along the Tuxent River okay. in southern Maryland. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you had the Nanticoke and others on the eastern shore, mm-hmm. large groups there as well. Yeah. It's interesting to hear all these terms because when, you know, Marylanders, they know things like Baltimore, Calvert, uh, but they also know things like Mat- Woman and Piscataway. And so do you know if um, the places that retain these native names, you know, Patuxent and whatnot, were those later given or were a lot of the original settlers like, you know, oh, let's maintain some of these, you know, indigenous terms? Pretty much they were maintained because okay. that's what they were. The yeah. Pot- Potomac. Yeah. The Patuxent. <laughs> right. The Wakamako. Mm-hmm. All of those were Native American names. Okay. That sort of, they just continued using them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the city of, of St. Mary's? When was it given that name, sort of incorporated in a, in a formal fashion? Okay. It began as our town we call St. Mary's, okay? Mm-hmm. And it consisted in April of 1634 of the fort okay. that we just discovered a couple of years ago and we're currently excavating on. Wow. But it didn't, by 1637, there was probably 400 people living in the fort. Wow. So okay. it was a lot of Already. people. But the next year, Lord Baltimore allowed them to move out and to establish their farms, which were at the time called plantations. Mm-hmm. Plantation mean you planted yourself in okay. that location. Okay. And so they've moved out, and that's when the real population growth began to grow. So St. Mary's was a center of a population for about three years. Okay. Then most of the people left, and the only purpose for the city and it wasn't a city at that time, but it was a government center. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a city officially in 1667 when it was incorporated by Lord Baltimore. Okay, okay. And I know you said that the original Arkandove had about 150 or so people. So did these ships go back and forth to carry more passengers, or were there other voyages? Yeah, yeah the, uh, the Ark stayed for a month or so. The Dove, the smaller vessel, remained because it was a vessel of trade and exploration. Okay. So, but the Ark went back, and it returned the following year with another load of 150 or some people. Wow. So there was multiple voyages Okay. Uh, okay. Over, over the next couple of years. Okay. So did the English settlers uh, or European settlers have generally good relations with the native peoples? Uh Lord Baltimore, his, this was Cecil Calvert. He was the son of the first Lord Baltimore. Okay. So he w- had learned and studied what happened and knew that it was very important to try to establish peaceful rapport. Mm-hmm. 
So the very first thing they did when they reached the waters of what would become Maryland, they went to the leader of Piscataway, called the Tayak, and requested permission to settle. Wow. Okay, and they got a response. If you want to, fine. If, but you don't never you don't have to either. You know, it was kind okay. of like, he was very cautious because they'd been attacked by the Virginians. So they were they were quite reasonably cautious, right. understandable. But then Henry Fleet said, "I know of a place down there called the uh, village of Yokomoko." Mm-hmm. So Leonard Calvert went down. They negotiated with the leader, the Werewants of the Yokomoko village, and they came to an agreement. The Yokomoko were being threatened constantly by the Susquehanna people from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. attacked. Uh, kidnappings, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. They were fixing to consolidate their village into one larger village for protection. So they were planning on leaving the the hamlet of Yokomoko. So they did made an exchange. Oh, they wow. said, I'll give, we're going to give you cloth and metal tools and all that stuff if you will let us have the village and the surrounding basically from St. Mary's to Point Lookout sort mm-hmm. of a thing. Mm-hmm. And they moved out, but they had one provision. We've already planted our corn crop. We want to harvest it. Okay, So we had this really fascinating such cultural situation yeah. where you had the native peoples and the newly arrived settlers living almost side by side. The, the English moved into some of the Okomoko houses. Wow. <laughs> and and there's the accounts talk about how the uh, the native peoples taught them how to hunt the local game. Mm-hmm. They, the English servants had not a clue of what do you do <laughs> with this stuff called corn. <laughs> They'd never faced it before. Right. So they're, they're talking about the native women would teach them how to prepare it, and no doubt they exchanged recipes and right. stuff. So it was a very, for the first time, six, eight years, ten years, it was a very uh, much more peaceful relationship. Huh. Yeah. And those they became known as the friend Indians, Piscataway, mm-hmm. the Patuxent people, who they had established a peaceful rapport with, basically, yeah. there. But there was incidents. Not all the colonists were particularly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was two Yokomoko who were killed in the oh early gosh. 40s. Uh-huh. So the Yokomoko moved across the Potomac uh, to uh, sort of isolate themselves more. Wow! There. But it was a it was a very unusual contact situation, if you will, that stands in contrast to something like Jamestown. Sure. Yeah. I've always wondered this. Do you have any idea how they initially were able to communicate with each other? You know, like obviously there's a huge language barrier. Is it just kind of you know, like, do we have any sense in, like, historical records how that took place? Well, the initial one, it was due to Henry Fleet. Who okay. Had already, had already learned the language. Okay. So he was very fluent. In okay. It. But they very quickly tried to acquire some language. Mm-hmm. Father Andrew White, in fact, went to live with the Piscataway. He is the wow. first one who tried to write the Piscataway language. Wow, oh wow. And he translated it into the Our Father, for example. And that survives at Georgetown University. Oh my goodness. So he was a linguist as well as a missionary and a noted scholar in England. Yeah. On on the continent, excuse me, not in England. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, even today, like, Jesuits have a, re- a reputation for being extremely educated. And so some people, you know, they imagine, like, sort of a clergy person. They're just kind of a, you know, sort of wild, uh, you know, over here to evangelize. But, I mean, a lot of them had very rigorous education, had to learn mm-hmm. multiple languages, you know. I mean, obviously, he was he was saying the Mass in Latin, so he didn't know Latin. He had no, sure. you know, probably French or German. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and he was a he was a very good scholar. He had taught about Aristotle and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, in fact, he he was at some of the main colleges on the continent of Europe. Oh, okay. So he was a he was a real rock star, as yeah. as we might say today, inter- intellectually. Right. Was he? Do you know if he was just, um, you know, appointed by his superiors to go as like the chaplain or? He had been working with Lord Baltimore, okay. and he really wanted to go. Hmm. The only English Jesuit effort at spreading the gospel was the Maryland mission. Oh wow! So and so the English Catholic priest, uh, they they were the ones who tried to make, and they they were modestly successful. Really, but it was a challenge. I mean, there was a number of the Piscataway who converted. Wow. And indeed, there's a, a good, a substantial number of the descendants of Piscataway that are still Catholic today. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, because I know of um, some of the French Jesuits that came to more northern parts, mm-hmm. so like the Iroquois, like Isaac Jogues and whatnot. Yeah, yes. I'm trying to think, do you know what the if there was an overlap in that time period or were, was one group significantly earlier? They were at the same time. Same time, yeah. But they were, because they were English Jesuits, they they no doubt communicated with the Spanish and the French and the others, but they were they were doing their their own mission. Okay, they were kind of doing their own thing. Did um, the, the English settlers at that time, uh, did they have slaves, um, or were they at all involved in the African slave trade? No. Originally, no. Okay. Uh, There was originally several Africans who were in the colony. Mm -hmm. They were indentured servants. Okay. But through time, that changed. Mm -hmm. Um, The the most wealthy, because slaves were an extremely expensive Mm. cost, if you will. Yeah. And the most wealthy were the ones that initially began acquiring a few enslaved people. But it was really late in the century, in the 1680s, 1690s, when there was enough wealth accumulation and people began moving from indentured servants. The the problem with indentured servant is after four years, you got to get another. Right, right. (laughs) And so they were moving to it. But slavery really didn't become fixed in Maryland until the very end of the 17th century. Hmm. Part of the reason for that is the Royal Africa Company was uh, disbanded in 1698, and they had sort of had the monopoly. Hmm. And when they did that, all kinds of people went to the African slaver and slavers to acquire people. And so the, the, the supply, if you will, increased dramatically. Our historian made a very good point years ago, Dr. Carr, that the 17th century Maryland was a society with some enslaved people. Mm-hmm. 18th century Maryland was a slave society. Wow. 
Wow. It was a very different dynamic. And the population went from less than 1% in the 1670s to 40% by 1730, 1740. Wow. So a massive change going on there. Yeah. So it's it's a complicated story. There's many factors involved with it, but... Uh, it was like all the other English colonies at the time. It was not rejected, mm. unfortunately. Right. Yeah, because I know one of the older churches in St. Mary's County is um, the St. Inigo's, and, and it has the, like, upper mm-hmm. upper church, which, which was apparently, like, where the slaves were supposed to yes, sit. right. You know, um, and that church is... Do you happen to know the the dating on that church? Uh, construction began in 1785. Okay, so that's much later. So then. it's one of the oldest oldest uh, standing churches. The yeah. others at Newtown. Okay, with uh, the Saint Francis Xavier. Right, 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 and that's probably was 1730s, 40s. Okay, although there was an earlier church there as well. Okay, but these are still. I mean, they're over, like a century plus yes. later than the original Absolutely. settlement. Right, right, and in a very different world. As yeah, yeah, that's that's good to know. I I, I was wasn't sure what the culture um, was like, you know, relative to the early settlers versus at the they've been there for you know generations and generations. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So you have done a lot of work with the brick chapel, what's known as the brick chapel, yes. excavating yes. it and whatnot. So when you first came here in the in the seventies. Was there much um, awareness of that that site? It the the area had always been known as the Chapel Field. Mm-hmm. When we acquired the land in 1980, it was on the deed the Chapel Field. Mm-hmm. So we knew it was there. Uh, 1938, a, a an architectural historian named Henry Chanley Foreman discovered the brick church. Wow. There. But he reburied it, and the location was... Again, really? It's sort of in this area, but yeah. he just did testing, not okay. major excavation. So in 1988, we began the process. Uh, although my predecessor, Gary Stone, in 83, s- said, let's find this for the 300th anniversary, 350th anniversary of Maryland. Yeah. Local Catholics raised money for us really? to do an archaeological survey. Oh, wow. And we discovered the chapel. We were able to uncover part of it and put a brick veneer at one end of it so it was permanently marked above ground. Mm-hmm. So that's when we found it. Uh, 1988, we began this intensive excavation to explore it. And in 1990, I got a National Endowment for the Humanities grant to further that work. So... That was major league excavation and then analysis. Yeah. And then what did it look like? We yeah. had, uh, you know, normally you'd go to the architectural plans. Well, there aren't any. Mm-hmm. Okay? <laughs> you go to the paintings. There aren't any. Yeah. What do we know about it? There is a couple of references. Okay. The only description is from an anti-Catholic royal governor named Francis Nicholson, who in 1697 said the Jesuits have some churches, quote, including a good brick chapel at St. Mary's, unquote. 
Wow. <laughs> Darn, we wish he'd been a verbose kind yeah, of guy. Right, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. But we know that there was people were buried inside under a stone floor. Mm-hmm. We have another case of the windows being broken out by somebody who was anti-Catholic. Mm-hmm. We have a few clues from the documents, but most of it has to come from the archaeology mm-hmm. and what was the Jesuits doing elsewhere in the world at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we had to take all of that together and finally, in the early, around 2001, came up with a, a, the best guess and started the reconstruction. And the architecture was finished in 2009. That's the building you see. Okay. But the interior wasn't done yet. So I'm really excited to say that we finally have money and we are in the process of rebuilding the tabernacle. Wow. Which the original survives in Baltimore, actually. Oh, oh, really? It's really cool. And the altar, the altar rail, all that. So hopefully the year 2023, we'll see the completion of a project that started way back in the last century. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, wow. So when you got to the site to excavate it, um, what does that look like? Is it? It was a pasture. Okay, so it's just okay. a grassy field. Grassy field, and we uncovered it. See, the story of the chapel is in, very important in American history. Hmm. It was constructed in the mid-1660s. The importance of that is nowhere else in the English-speaking world at the time could a freestanding Catholic church be built. It was forbidden by English law. Wow. So it was only because of Maryland's policy of religious freedom Hmm. that it could be built. Stood until it was used for worship until 1704. A Protestant governor ordered the chapel lock, the key taken, and it never again to be used for religious purposes. That effectively totally ended the religious freedom that Maryland had championed. Wow. So about 10 years later, the Jesuits dismantled it, retook all the bricks and everything away and recycled them, and it was lost to history. That's so fascinating that they they basically took it down themselves. Right, right. <laughs> I've never even heard of that, but I they guess it makes them, sense it's good resources. Well, the <laughs> legend had it they took it down to St. Inigo's, uh-huh. where the, the Navy base is today, yeah. and used it to build a large house. Huh. And we did, archaeology was performed down there in 1984, and they discovered a foundation with chapel brick in it. Wow. So we think that legend was actually true. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So what did you discover as you start digging through this field, you know? Well, Well, first of all, are you even using, are there certain tools that you use to kind of find a spot to start? Now, in this case, what we did is we replowed everything. Okay. And then once it was washed by several hard rains, mm-hmm. we gridded it off in 10-foot squares, okay. and then we collected everything that was exposed on the surface in that square. Okay. And then you can map where stuff is spatially. Okay. And what that showed us is this massive concentration of brick sort of mm. X marks the spot mm-hmm. where it was. Yeah. But we started digging, and... What was totally surprising is the walls of that building are three foot thick. 
Wow. And they went below ground five feet. Oh, wow. An extraordinarily massive foundation. Yeah. i give you an example. There's a, a Anglican church at Jamestown. Its foundation goes down 18 inches. Oh, my goodness. So this is a really big... They were building for permanence, mm -hmm. but there's also an architectural rate, uh, rule from the classical world that the relationship of the below-ground foundation dictates how high the walls were. Mm. And that relationship indicates 25 foot above ground. Okay. So we had that piece of information oh, wow. from it. But it was we found that there was uh, fragments of tile, flat roof tile that were locally made here. Fancy window bricks, especially uh, made bricks that allowed the mason to create windows with multiple parts and everything, curved shapes. Yeah. Uh, that was, they found been found, I think, two other times in North America from this period. Wow. So the, they were really well done. We found pieces of the brick floor huh. that, in fact, was not from Maryland. And the geological survey said it almost certainly was imported from Europe. Oh my goodness. So 14 tons of rock for the floor of this wow. building shows some planning and considerable money must have been available. Yeah. But where that money came from, we don't know. It's one of the mysteries I'd love yeah, to solve. Yeah, because you said there, I mean, most of the people that originally came were not super wealthy. No. You no, know? No. So it is a real mystery how they built this thing. Did Father Andrew White have a hand in this? No. Okay. Father Andrew White built the first chapel. In 1635, outside the fort, mm -hmm. that building was wooden. Okay. It was burned down in 1645 when English uh, troops attacked St. Mary's. Wow. This was in the middle of what is called the English Civil War. Mm -hmm. And they attacked St. Mary's because it was papist. I <laughs> where they are. As yeah. well as sort of leaning toward the king. Okay. Uh, supporting him. So one of the things they did is captured... Father Andrew White, uh, they also burned down that chapel. Wow. So, and then Andrew, Andrew White was taken back along with several leaders of the colony in chains back to England for trial. Oh they God. all got off, but, okay. uh, but that kind of ended the story for the next 15 years wow. or 20 years until things settled down and then they could return and built the first major brick building in all of Maryland. Wow. So it's a, it was a very impressive piece of architecture for the infant colony at that time. Oh, yeah. It was still very young. Oh, I mean, and then when you compare it to some of the other churches we mentioned that are a century later, I mean, it's it's magnificent, you know, this, these, I mean, I can't even imagine these thick brick walls, you know? Yeah, they really, they were doing it upright. <laughs> Do you know if it was just a church that was dedicated to Mary or was there any other saints that it was named after? Well, Oh, Catholic churches always ha are dedicated to something. Right. Okay. Legend sort of had it that it was St. Ignatius, which okay. was the Jesuits' uh, uh, founder. Mm -hmm. But we found one reference to a call in 1686 for there to be a mass in celebration of, uh, of an English event mm -hmm. at St. Mary's Chapel, mm. which sort of suggested that. But the other clue is the holy line, 
when you built a church, if assuming you were not in a city that's congested and you don't have it, you put a stake in the ground where the door is. Mm-hmm. You wait for the sunrise on the feast day of the saint to whom it's dedicated, and then you put a stake in the ground at the altar in. And that becomes the holy line about which all the rest of the church is laid out. So where does the chapel holy line point? It points to where the sun rises on the 2nd of February. Feast of Presentation? Feast of the Presentation of Jesus, Feast of the Purification of of Mary. Mary, And it's where the sorrows of Mary were disclosed by the man in the temple sending her. Mm. So we think, based on all of that, it was dedicated to Mary. Okay. Now, I know being in a place called St. Mary right. City and a colony <laughs> of Maryland, that's a big leap. Right, but. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, but that's so cool to... Um, so, I mean, when you, when you all were trying to figure that out. Did you, you planted a stake somewhere and waited to see? We actually did a calculation based okay. on the orientation. Okay. Because okay. Uh, this was Dr. Tim Reardon who did a lot of the excavations there. He was able to work this out. Wow. That's so neat. I didn't know that about, about churches. Wow. Where you can. And, and that's can, a medieval yeah. practice that continued okay. into the 17th. Okay. Maybe even into the 18th. Which is really interesting because I know... Um, you know, with, with te- plenty of other religions, they often oriented their temples towards yes. certain, whether it's, uh, I mean, it could be the sunset or the sunrise, but it also could be certain constellations when they're more present Correct. in the sky. And so that's really kind of neat that the that the Catholic Church kind of, you could almost say baptized that practice in a, in a way, you know, of yeah. aligning it, with the stars. It used, it used the idea. It's probably a much older right. idea. Right, know, but. yeah. Now, I know that at some point you all encountered some tombs, right, underneath that spot? Yes. The The chapel is the location of the largest cemetery from 17th century Maryland. Mm-hmm. We have done ground-penetrating radar over that, and the, the, the hits, the anomalies mm-hmm. that came out of that, we could be dealing with as many as 400 graves. Wow. None of which are, of course, were marked because it became a field and all of that. Hmm. Inside the chapel, there may be as many as 60, 70 graves because that was a more prestigious location to be built. But there's only three people who we actually conclusively know who they are out of all that 400-plus people. Okay. And they and that's because they were buried inside the chapel in a totally unique way in the lead coffins. Whoa. We discovered that in 1990. Uh, there was the, they are the first lead coffins discovered by archaeologists in North America from that era. Huh. And, of course, the big question is, who were they? Right. <laughs> and, of course, some of my colleagues would be lucky and there'd be nameplates on all of them. But for us, right, no, right, right. no such luck. <laughs> So so what we did is made the hard decision to rebury them. Mm-hmm. And then we spent two years planning how to conduct a major scientific investigation of them. That was done in 1992. Uh, we had uh, several hundred scientists, engineers, historians, chemists, other spe- physicists who assisted us in this project. 
mm-hmm. and we lifted each coffin out of the ground, took them into a field hospital tent provided by the U.S. Army, and opened each of them, collected all the data possible, oh, and wow. began the process of trying to determine who they were. Wow. So were you there when the I lids did. were taken yeah, off the yeah, coffins? Yeah. Dr. Tim Reardon and I were the project directors wow. for this project, uh, for the scientific part of it there. And, yeah, we were there the whole time. And the uh, the large, the middle, co- well, the small cop, there's three co- sizes, okay. Mm. The small one was a little child. Mm. Uh, the middle one was a woman in her 60s, probably in terrible health. She really? had she had all kinds of medical problems. How could you tell? Well, from the bones. Okay. We worked directly with our our colleagues at the Smithsonian Institution to do uh, intensive forensic analysis. She had arthritis. Mm. She had bone loss, osteoporosis. Mm. She had broken her upper right leg, Oof. and when she broke it, she fell, and the sharp point of the top slid down through the muscle Ooh. of the lower part of the leg for over three inches. Oh, goodness. And all they did is put a splint on it. They didn't wow. try to reset it like we would do today. Yeah. She had only eight teeth left, <laughs> four of which were mostly just uh, roots, open pulp cavities. Wow. And she's one of the most wealthy, prominent people in the really? colony. Oh, goodness. <laughs> but she was very well preserved. Uh-huh. Uh, they had buried her in a shroud. They had crossed her hands at her waist and then tied her wrist up with ribbon, silk ribbon, mm-hmm. which survived. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we found sprigs of rosemary strewn through her coffin, mm. which was uh, for remembrance. It was a, a ceremonial herb mm. in England at the time. And her head of hair was largely preserved. Wow. Did it look like they did any kind of involving techniques? Not for her. Not for her? No, so the, just the conditions were right to allow... She was wrapped in lead, so it was okay. pro- provided a, a drier location. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the big coffin was a surprise because it was an adult male, mm-hmm. probably in his 50s. But from the waist down, his bone was in perfect state of preservation almost. From the waist up, most of the bone was converted into white crystals. A very strange situation. And yet his full head of shoulder-length hair survived. Wow. (laughs) So I think he might have, they might have tried to embalm him. Okay, okay. And such. So he, based on chemical analysis of the bone, the isotopes, the ages, all of that, we believe he was Philip Culvert, the brother of Lord Baltimore, okay. a major figure in early Maryland history. The woman was his first wife, a woman named Anne Wolsey Culvert. Mm-hmm. The baby was kind of unknown, but it was buried huh. right next to them. Yeah. So you would think there'd be some relationship. Right. And in 1994, we got them to try some DNA analysis, but it was... Uh, with archaeological material, it's very challenging, so mm. we didn't get anything. Mm. But 2016, a Harvard geneticist, David Reich, developed new methodology that could get male DNA out of archaeological remains 
in a more effective manner. Hmm. Our Smithsonian College says, we got a test case for you. So we submitted those bone samples and finally got a resolution. It was a six-month-old child, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't female. It was male, Mm -hmm. and it was the son of Philip Calvert Mm -hmm. by his second wife. So we finally, when science advanced, we were finally able to resolve that unknown about them. So those are the only three people we currently know who they were in the, out of all those hundreds mm. of people. So, I mean, I would imagine then the, the, first, the wife would probably have been buried first. And then, you would think, but yeah. they were buried. Well, this is, it gets complicated. <laughs> yeah. The, the wife and Philip were covered with soil at the same time. So they were put mm. in the bit at the same time, even though she died a year and a half before him. Okay. So where was she? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have an answer. Do we and the baby yeah. was later. The baby was later. It cut through the fill that covered them. Hmm. So his second wife was a woman named uh, Jane Sewell. And she, apparently they had the child. Philip, uh, we think, based on the uh, pollen. The pollen was critical in determining mm-hmm. what time of the year they died. Yeah. Okay. Wow. The baby's coffin was full of... of Fresh oak and pine pollen, indicating springtime. Hmm. So given the age, it was Philip's son, was born in November. Philip went through Christmas knowing he had a new child, a new heir at long last. Yeah. Then he drops dead on the 14th day of January. Wow. But thinking... His heir. It will live on, yeah. But around April, the child died as oh, well. Oh, my God. So it's a very sad story, yeah. but it, it we at least can return that to human memory now. Sure. Do they have a sense, could they figure out how the child died? The child suffered from rickets, mm-hmm. from probably scurvy, mm-hmm. severe uh, iron deficiency. Wow. Apparently, it was there was a inability to feed properly is what we think was going on with that little baby. But the other option is, too, young children were swaddled in that time period. Mm -hmm. They were pretty much covered, kept close to a fireplace in the winter because born in November. Right. We don't think the child was exposed to sunlight much at all. Yeah. If it had been born in April, it probably would have been outside, would have been had a very different thing. Yeah. we think in part the swaddling practice also contributed to its vitamin deficiency for vitamin wow. D. Wow, yeah, no vitamin D from the sun. Oh, my gosh, huh. So it's very, lots of stories here from yeah. lots of different angles. Did did he have, do we know if he, if he had any older children that survived? Yeah, no children at all. And it doesn't look like Anne could have children hmm. from what we could tell. So okay. this was his only child. Okay, now, where are these coffins now? The coffins are where they were discovered, oh. inside the chapel, under a glass floor. Mm. So you can see them when you come to the chapel site. Wow. Wow. So you said right now you're wor- they're working on restoring the tabernacle and then... And the altar, the, the altar. altar rail, all the parts of a, of a... which you would need for the liturgy at that time period. Mm-hmm. 
Have there been any masses celebrated in that chapel since? I think there's been a couple okay. that have been done there. Uh, but it's, I would think once we get the actual altar finished and everything, it will be a much more formal place. Okay. Space. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I mentioned to you that I'm the currently the like the campus minister for the, the Catholic students uh, at St. Mary's, and okay. so I'm hope I'm, I'm I would love to have a mass, get our chaplain to say a mass in there at some point. You know, especially when it's all finished and. I mean, I think it would be a cool thing for, for other students, even if they're not Catholic, to come and just see a historic, you know, liturgy set in a historic church, and there's just something yeah. powerful about that. I agree. Wow. Totally agree. Wow. On the very spot. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll have to wait, though, until the Feast of the Presentation. Cause yeah, that's there you, a, go. <laughs> you know, oh, my gosh. Um, well, I want to talk just a little bit about the – we kind of hinted at it, but this – the religious history, There's there was times of religious tolerance, and then there were times of religious persecution. So you said initially the people who came over on the Ark and the Dove were, were a mixed bag, Catholics and Protestants, and it sounds like they got along fairly well. Yeah, They did fairly well. And then through time you had uh, 1650 or 49, Lord Baltimore invited Puritans who were being persecuted mm. in Virginia. Oh, wow. They founded... Who were they being persecuted by? By the Church of England. Okay. okay. So they settled Annapolis. Okay. Uh, then you, you had Anabaptist, you had Presbyterians, you had Quakers coming in. This was the largest Quaker population before Pennsylvania was established. Oh, I didn't know that. 1680. Yeah, because there's no, I don't think there's any Quaker churches remaining in like this, at least in the southern area. No, there's one on the eastern shore. The okay. oldest standing building in Maryland, in fact, is Third Haven Meeting House over in Easton. Built really? around 1685. So it's it's the same building still? Still, I mean, it's had repairs. Repairs, sure. Time, but it is the original. Oh. So yeah, there was a lot of different faiths here. Mm -hmm. And that was because of the policy that Lord Baltimore established mm -hmm. beginning in 1634. Now, we talk about the Act Concerning Religion, sometimes mm -hmm. called the Toleration Act. Yeah. Lord Cecil Calvert never used the word toleration. Okay. At the time, toleration meant you can't convert them, you can't kill them, all you can do is tolerate them, sort of a thing. I mean, very different sense of that. Yeah. What he always used was the words liberty of conscience mm. and the free exercise of religion. Mm. So that was his sort of mantra concerning religious uh, practice in the colony. In fact, there's a Presbyterian minister in 1669 who wrote a letter to a friend, so it wasn't like a political statement or anything. Right. And he said, we have a great deal of freedom, especially in religion hmm. in Maryland. Wow. So it was, a, it was a very different approach to things. Mm -hmm. And it ended after Lord Baltimore was overthrown in 1689. There was a revolution. Mm -hmm. 700 troops marched on St. Mary's City and laid siege to the State House. Wow. Was it that totally unexpected? Yeah, it was. So it, they had no real defense mechanism. They couldn't. They couldn't get enough troops together to do wow. anything about it. So they wisely surrendered. <laughs> the yeah. odds were bad. Right. But that led to royal governors, not governors appointed by Lord Baltimore, but okay. the royal governors appointed by the King and Queen of England, 
mm-hmm. established. Mm-hmm. They first thing they did is made the Church of England the official church of Maryland, to which all citizens had to pay taxes. Mm. <laughs> Catholics were forbidden to hold office, okay. to serve in the militia, all the things that were going on in in there, and eventually all uh, ability for Catholics to practice their faith even, mm. except in the privacy of their homes, mm. was ended. That's why the chapel was locked up, because it just said, enough of this. We don't right. want nothing. You'd think they would at least, they would want to just convert it into an Anglican church, you know, like it's great, it's a great structure. Like It, it was too papist. <laughs> okay. The Anglican church was the state house. Huh. When the capital moved away, they moved the government in 1695 and then county government a few years later. The brick state house was redundant. What do you do with it? Hmm. So it was given to the Church of England and it became a Anglican church from like 1708 to 1830. Okay. It stood a long time. Yeah. And it was wow. falling apart in 1830. They dismantled it and used its bricks to build the current Trinity Church. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, in a sense, it still stands. In yeah, that way, that great, for sure. Wow. So, when did um, things, I guess, how did things end up settling down? Because um, now we look at Maryland, and it is, especially Southern Maryland, is, you know, probably predominantly Catholic in terms of if you just count up all the churches. There's a lot. There's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a large Catholic population. Well, there was great oppression throughout the 18th century. Mm-hmm. That endured until the start of the American Revolution. And then like the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence was Charles Carroll of yeah. Carrollton. Yeah. His grandfather had worshipped in the church at St. Mary's. Wow. And his, in his private chapel, when he signed the Declaration of Independence, was the tabernacle that we believe was at the church at St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. So it was called the Carroll Family Tabernacle. Wow. And, but um, but it, it, it was only with the passage of the First Amendment okay. that religious freedom that had flourished in early Maryland was finally restored. Hmm. And from the Maryland became the first diocese in the new country, the Baltimore Diocese, with John Carroll, another relative of the Carrolls there, appointed as the first bishop yeah. for the new country of the United States. So, and all of that really started mm-hmm. at St. Mary's City in 1634. Hmm. Do you know if Archbishop Carroll was born in? Maryland, or if he yes, was, okay, Marylander. Okay, so he's a yeah, full blooded American. Right, absolutely, <laughs> yes, yes. Wow, um, that's so interesting. Yeah, do you know much else about John Carroll, the the signer of the the Declaration of Independence, like or Charles Carroll? Or, sorry, Charles Carroll. How he, um, I mean, was was he was he looked at by some of the other signers as kind of uh, like with suspicion, or was he pretty? There was there was still considerable anti-Catholic feeling there, mm-hmm. but he had been a champion of writing incognito letters published in the Annapolis Gazette and things like that, and he also was extremely wealthy. Mm. 
So <laughs> that always helps. <laughs> he helped support the revolution yeah. in significant ways as well. Like he owned the iron foundry where cannon and stuff were being made up near Baltimore, mm. or in Baltimore. Mm. So yeah, he was a, he was a very person, and he was the last signer to live. He did died in eighteen thirty two. Oh, wow. Okay. That's so interesting. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I've learned so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm just enjoying this. Wow. So to kind of wrap up then, can you talk a little bit about, I, I know you said you're helping with the restoration of the Brick Chapel. Are, are there other things that you're working on right now? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I hope to do a book about the entire chapel project oh, and good. all the stories we've learned about it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, well, currently we're, the museum is exploring the original fort. Mm. And we're working on one, the first building inside we've discovered. Mm -hmm. And then late in April, we're going to start another two-year program on the home of the first governor of Maryland, mm -hmm. Leonard Calvert. We're going to try to answer architectural details about that. And this is in a very important building because it is where the act concerning religion was passed in 1649. Okay. But it's also where in 1664, Maryland passed the first slave laws. Hmm. But wow. many other laws were passed right. there as sure. well. So it's a very significant building. And we hope within the next six years to be able to reconstruct it mm -hmm. and turn the interior into a modern exhibit gallery to tell the many stories that occurred in that spot. Yeah. For example, it was surrounded by a fort in 1645 from the English Civil War, the only physical evidence of the English Civil War in North America. Wow. That we found, at least so far. Okay. So, wow. so lots of projects going on. Yeah, there. that's so, so exciting. There's going to be a lot of interesting discoveries coming out yeah. in recent years. And we have a field school each summer. We really? We've run that since 1971. And uh, St. Mary's College students are eligible for it, certainly, to attend. And they'll be mostly working on trying to explore the fort. That's so, so cool. So that's another, uh, another opportunity. Yeah. Along with uh, internships and mm -hmm. things of that nature, which uh, is, right. we have a lot of uh, student work. Yeah. What, what are some of the, the already in-print books and resources that discuss a little bit of the history of, of Maryland and St. Mary's County, especially – things written contemporaneously that, that you've, um, they can go to? Well, there's, there's a guidebook to the museum that covers uh -huh. the history. Uh, la two years ago, we published a book in the University of Florida Press that sort of summarizes 50 years of the exploration of St. Mary's. Yeah. Uh, unearthing St. Mary's, okay, yeah. which is available also. Okay. Uh, and there's a number of reports, and uh, chapel cemetery report, things of that mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. So there's literature out there mm -hmm. that is available. And okay. our book gift shop in Farthings Ordinary has a selection of that material available. Great. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller, for sitting down and sharing with me all of your, your knowledge and all of your research. And um, definitely, I need, I need to take another tour. I haven't been... I, I'm at St. Mary's every day, but I haven't done a, <laughs> a tour in forever, so I'm going right. to have to sign it up. All right. Well, very good. All right. Thank you. Thank you.